Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Alan, hello. It's been a while between episodes. What have you been up to? Well, it's good to be back, Darren. The main reason for the gap between podcasts is that I have just spent three weeks in southern France and Venice. I'd never been to either place, and I was, to be honest, a bit sceptical before we set off. But I can report back that the weather was perfect, the food and wine superb, the art and architecture inspiring, and even in St Mark's Square, we could move easily without a constant throng of tourists. Why did no one tell me about these things before? But look, on the serious side, I'm kidding. There was no serious side, just hedonistic enjoyment. We were in Venice for the Biennale, the Contemporary Art Fair, and it was really worth going all that way just to see the incredible installation by the German artist Anselm Kiefer at the Doge's Palace, but that is another podcast. What about you? What have you been doing? Well, I can get behind you and hedonistic enjoyment, Alan, so I'm very pleased to hear this. My main focus actually has been preparing and delivering an intensive master's course on the topic of energy security, which is an issue that overlaps with my main focus of geoeconomics but I'd never really looked into it in any depth before. But it turns out 2022 was a pretty interesting year to be learning and talking about energy security. And it's been fun to sort of build my own models about how geopolitics and domestic politics interact with oil and gas and the renewables industries. I've also had a couple of pieces accepted, one which is co-authored with Victor Ferguson and Scott Waldron and follows up on our previous work on Australian exporters' response to losing the Chinese market during the coercion campaign. Yeah, I remember that. This one looks at the sources of economic coercion within the Chinese system as there are different bureaucratic actors and different motivations, some of which are not coercive at all, that appear to be behind the variety of measures experienced by Australian exporters over the past few years. The other one is an academic paper on the subject of illiberal hegemony, which I co-authored with my PhD supervisor, John Eikenberry, which is a very much a theoretical discussion of what an international order might look like under Chinese leadership. It took over five years from start to finish, and so we're pretty happy, but we're not quite there yet because it's in the copy editing process. But I've uploaded a working version of the paper online, and I'll post links to both for any who are interested. But let's get to the news. And good grief, it's been a momentous month to be away. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 9th of November. The US midterm results are currently trickling in and we don't have any firm results yet. The COP27 conference has kicked off this week in Egypt, but we need to catch up on the news. So we'll start by looking abroad at the Chinese Communist Party's 20th Party Congress and then turn to US technology export controls and briefly the national security strategy. In the second half, we'll look at a busy month in Australian foreign policy, focusing in particular on the leaders meeting between Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Japan's Prime Minister Kishida Fumio. 
a new security arrangement that has been reached. But let's begin with the CCP Party Congress. I expect all our listeners will know that this happened last month, the 20th Party Congress. Xi Jinping got an unprecedented third five-year term as party leader, breaking the convention of a two-term limit instituted by Deng Xiaoping. And there is no evidence really that he's going to stop at three terms either. To some surprise, he got all of his allies onto the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee, which meant that the main rival faction, once led by Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, was completely booted from the party leadership, despite key members being young enough to continue. And the reality of this sort of consolidation of Xi's power was compounded by this bizarre symbolism of Hu Jintao himself being led out, manhandled almost, out of the Great Hall for reasons that are still not quite clear. The new premier, Li Chang, is a bit of a surprise. He was the party boss in Shanghai during its devastating COVID lockdown. But his appointment really is a manifestation of the fact that loyalty to Xi Jinping is or appears to be the most important determinant of individual success within the CCP. That's not to say that those appointed are necessarily incompetent, but that loyalty is the first priority. So Alan, I have thoughts, but as a non-China watcher, what was your takeaway from the Congress and its central implications for Australia? From the point of view of Australian foreign policy rather than China itself, I don't think the Congress changed anything. It unfolded pretty much as everyone expected on important issues like Taiwan, for example, the language in the party reports was not noticeably different from what we've seen before. She didn't follow Mao as chairman of the party, although he did, of course, as you've just said, cement his already considerable power. But what about you, Darren? You were just saying how much you enjoyed building models. So surely you've got a model for this as well. Yeah, the question of models is actually the most interesting aspect of these events for me. But these are not my models, but some of the most important in political science. China has never been a democracy, obviously, but starting in the 1990s and into the 2000s, social scientists observing that China's incredible economic growth was founded on a pretty high degree of governing competence, realized that they could not use standard models of political authoritarianism to understand China's success. These standard models tend to focus on the inherent structural fragilities of authoritarianism because of the lack of checks and balances and the fact that power is concentrated in elites, there's no separation of powers, there's no genuine rule of law, and there's no political contestation. And so what happens is power is concentrated in this personalistic dictator or this series of elites, and the outcome eventually is bad policy choices, either because governing a country is beyond any one individual, even a dictator, but also because in authoritarian systems, policy motivations often devolve into the protection of regime legitimacy, the corrupt enrichment of elites, or often the literal cutthroat political competition to win the dictator's favour or even replace him. But China was different, and the most famous model, I think, proposed to explain this is called Authoritarian Resilience, which is the title of a 2003 article by Andrew Nathan. And he argued that China was different for four main reasons. One, 
the politics of succession was bound by norms which created a stable institution of succession. Two, political promotion was based more on merit than factional politics. Three, an effective differentiation and functional specialization of different governing institutions. So everyone knew their lane, basically. And four, the establishment of some institutions of political participation for the public that helped enhance the parties and the government's legitimacy. And so Nathan argued that these structural foundations created a sense of stability and that then founded the broader bargain that we understand Chinese politics to be based upon, which is the party delivers functional performance in terms of economic growth and political stability. And in return, the people accept strong limits on their individual freedoms. Does that sound familiar to you, Alan, the idea that China during the reform era has been almost uniquely competent as an authoritarian governing structure? That's right. And the model has gone. So we will eventually find out whether resilience in authoritarian systems can be based on other factors or not. Whether you regard the results of the Congress from the perspective of the CPP or the Chinese economy or the United States administration or the Taiwanese, the impact of tightening of central control of party discipline and ideology is almost certainly going to have both positive and negative effects. And it's just going to be a long time before we know where the balance lies. Yeah, that's sort of my takeaway too. The foundations of that old model are gone. And maybe, somewhat ironically, Chinese politics might be easier to understand because it's now much closer to standard models of authoritarianism. And so there are sort of familiar markers of structural fragility that might emerge over time that China watchers can identify in the years ahead. And this stems back to two basic problems or risks facing the Chinese system now. The first being bad information, that lower level officials lack any incentive to deliver bad news up to the leadership. And that means that Xi Jinping and his inner circle are given a distorted picture of the policy problems China faces. And of course, if you don't know what the problems actually are, you can't solve them. And the second risk is that even if you have good information, you can still get bad policy because of the absence of political contestation, the absence of political institutions that discipline policy. If she wants it, it's going to happen and he'll face much less pushback even when he makes policy mistakes. Now, there are two sides to the story. This kind of centralised system means that decisions can be made quickly and things can get done. And that's obviously a sharp contrast with the political paralysis we see in the US and elsewhere. But on the other side, it doesn't seem like there are structural mechanisms for correction of bad policy. Two last points from me. First, in some ways, the regressive parochialism of this almost banal reversion to the authoritarian mean is best illustrated by the fact that there is not a single woman on the 24-person Politburo, let alone the all-powerful seven-person standing committee. And that's for the first time in over 25 years. And second, if you step back, it is still interesting to think about why Xi Jinping did this. Is this just another timeless example of power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely? Or has he made a more clear-eyed strategic assessment that the old Deng model, which was a pillar of China's success, is just not suitable for today's environment and the next phase of China's rise? 
But to me, this Congress is a sign of political decay rather than political flourishing. Maybe, but I would add that if we had been having this conversation at the end of the Hu Jintao period, we would have agreed, like almost all observers, including Xi Jinping, that corruption was the thing that would undermine Communist Party legitimacy more than anything else. And that threat, at least so far as you can see in terms of Chinese public perceptions, seems to have been successfully addressed by the anti-corruption campaign, whatever other political advantages it may have had for Xi. That's a great point, Alan. Perhaps it is true that the Deng model was burdened with this fragility of corruption, which was undermining the party's legitimacy, and that a pivot to what to me at least, resembles a more classic form of authoritarian politics was needed. Now, does that justify the clear elevation of loyalty as the primary organising principle and the suppression of factional politics as sources of political contestation? As you say, time will tell. But speaking of the environment that China is experiencing right now, let's turn to the US and really what looks to me as one of the most significant turning points in US-China relations ever. And this is the Biden administration's decision last month to impose sweeping controls on the export of semiconductors and other advanced technologies to China. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, had foreshadowed this in a speech in September in which he described these key technologies as force multipliers that are so foundational to the future of US national security that not only did the US have to lead in them, but maintain, in his words, as large a lead as possible. So these Commerce Department regulations are basically attempting to prevent China from purchasing the world's most advanced chips, semiconductors, and the equipment to make them. And they do this by banning the export of chips themselves, related software, equipment, and components, but also by extending these prohibitions to any non-American company in the industry that is using U.S. semiconductor technology. And they even prohibit U.S. citizens, residents, and green card holders from working in Chinese chip firms. So this decision does have a good chance of setting back China's semiconductor industry possibly for a decade or more, but equally it will have very uncertain effects on the global semiconductor supply chain. So, Alan, can I get your initial reaction before I launch into my mini lecture of what's going on? I couldn't agree with you more on its importance. This American announcement is far more consequential for Australian policy than the results of the Party Congress. This is real change with long-term consequences. I've been arguing for some time, including possibly on the podcast, that the China-US relationship wasn't like the Cold War and that containment, however you define it, was not possible or desired by the United States. But I now think I was wrong. This decision is certainly contemporary containment, an effort not to outcompete China, but to institute concrete steps to cut it off from the most important tools of both military and economic competition. And to back them up, and we'll come back to this, as you said, there's also coercive pressure on American allies using the US financial system as leverage. No one here in Australia has yet spelled out the consequences. I don't think I've seen any comment by a minister about it. But given the very different nature of the 
Australian and US economic interests in China, this policy direction could force some painful decisions on Australia. So let's talk about coercion again. I've said on the podcast several times before that I think about coercion as a common, ancient and unsurprising element of international relations. History is littered with examples from every powerful state. And this seems to me just one of many examples of coercive behaviour by the United States. Now, I emphasise here that I'm not being critical. It just seems natural to me. And I also emphasise that it doesn't let the Chinese off the hook for their trade sanctions against Australia. But I think we should resist these not because they are, quote, coercive, but because they break commitments that China has made to us under the WTO and the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement. So do you agree? <laughs> well, I have many thoughts. I think from the outset, it's worth contrasting these controls with the haphazard, sometimes contradictory and often ineffective policies of the Trump administration. Rather, these new regulations appear to be, in a relative sense, targeted and thorough, and there is a good chance their impact will be significant. So unlike the Trump administration policies, I'm confident that a lot of people went through this issue carefully, evaluated the extremely difficult trade-offs they faced, whether they took action or did not take action. And we could do hours, I think, on this issue alone. So what I'm about to say doesn't feel anything close to enough. But with that caveat, I think I'd start by saying I wouldn't call this coercion against China at least not in the sense that Thomas Schelling talks about it. This is what Schelling calls brute force. The aim here is capability degradation, to weaken the adversary rather than to generate political pressure on Beijing to change its policies. There is no deal here. The US isn't seeking to drive a hard bargain, but rather maintain this large lead in these technology domains, which they assess have the most important impact on the military balance. No argument there, but it was the coercive impact on US allies to join in that I was really talking about. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, fair enough. I'll return to that in a moment. Look, export controls of sensitive military technology have a long history throughout the Cold War, and they are widely accepted to be a legitimate means of seeking or maintaining battlefield advantage against adversaries. So I've been thinking about this decision by asking under what conditions might it be the correct policy? And so I've done a bit of a cost-benefit analysis. And look, to start with the cost side of the ledger, it is lengthy. The foundational nature of the technologies involved, plus it should be said the complete lack of trust on the US side engendered by China's model of civil military fusion, means that to have the required impact on China's military capabilities, you have to go up the supply chain. And so to oversimplify, you can't just prohibit the export of the missile. You have to stop the export of the chip that goes into the missile. But that chip, of course, goes into a heap of other things that are commercial in use. So even if it was otherwise physically impossible to achieve the intended impact on China's military capabilities, like any other way, and you had to do something like this, these measures are still going to be perceived by China, as you said, Alan, as economic containment, as an attack on China's basic right to economic development. 
And look, we don't know what China's response will be yet because they've been focused on the party congress. But it seems clear that the level of enmity and mistrust is only going to grow between the two superpowers. And so I can see why you're assessing these as Cold War-like dynamics. Second, on the cost side, the measures might not work. Right? They require multilateral cooperation to succeed, and that might not be forthcoming. Or even if Washington is able to persuade, or as you suggest, Alan, coerce its allies and partners to comply, these kinds of regimes are often very leaky still, and China might find ways to access these technologies. And non-US firms are going to have a strong commercial incentive to develop separate parallel supply chains to China that design out US technology. And that would give them a big competitive advantage over US firms if they do that. And look, if the US tries to coerce its way to success of its friends, that's going to have a host of costs in other ways. And then the third on the cost ledger is what the US is going to do with the time that it's buying with these measures. Semiconductor manufacture is insanely difficult. The things they can achieve are really remarkable. But to get there, companies have to spend 20 30%, maybe even more of their budgets on research and development. And so depriving companies of one of their largest customers is going to cut their revenue and therefore their investments in future technologies, which will slow their technological progress. Mm. And I know the US government thinks it can fill the gap with industrial policy measures like this CHIPS Act, but the money involved, as I understand it, is really just nowhere near what is needed, what kind of money is spent already today. So it's possible that even with these measures at some point, the US will lose its lead anyway. That's the cost side of the ledger. Then you have the benefits. How do the benefits stack up? And this is where we start talking about military scenarios and the logic of synchronizing your economic measures with a military timetable, much like we saw with the sanctions against Russia in the early months of its invasion. So if you're worried about China invading Taiwan, say in the next 10 years, then this kind of measure if it takes China 10 years or more to catch up, might push out that timetable. Or if you think the fundamental problem is Beijing's assessment that China is on an upward trajectory and that the US is declining, right, so that China's time will come, this might also change that assessment and push out military timetables for action. Of course, the opposite might be true too. It might increase the urgency to act. And finally, if you're trying to alleviate concerns about US resolve and staying power in the region, look, this won't solve those in future. Trump can still be elected in 2024, but it is an extremely clear signal right now that Washington is willing to take concrete and costly and risky actions to try to hold back China's battlefield capabilities for quite a long time. Two last points. One, you know, I do find this all a bit depressing, but almost inevitable. It's been clear for a while now that the US has basically given up on negotiating with China. Look, the two sides are still talking and maybe the leaders will meet in the next few months, but the interests and the two systems seem fundamentally incompatible to enable cooperation. Second, I co-authored a piece a few years ago. We used the term the technology security dilemma. And this is the idea that the combination of advanced technology with economic interdependence was making both the US and China feel inherently vulnerable. And that until each side began to feel more secure, they would not be interested in reassurance and trying to make the other side 
feel more secure, which is essential for getting out of any security dilemma. And so the only possible silver lining you might try to see here is that this measure fast tracks the arrival of a significantly decoupled technology equilibrium where both sides feel a bit more secure and then can begin to empathize with the other side in the interest of avoiding war. But look, we're still a long way away from that. That was interesting and depressing, as you say. But what about the question I asked about China and Chinese coercion and Australia? I noticed that Prime Ministers Albanese and Kishida were all over it in their statements a couple of weeks ago. And as I said before, I think the better framing is adherence to agreed rules. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I actually have another piece coming out in the next few weeks ahead of Osmin, which explicitly highlights... You've been writing it non-stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of these have been years in the making and some have been much faster. But this piece actually, it's going to be for CSIS, explicitly highlights the challenge we face in distinguishing quote-unquote legitimate coercion, so sanctions on Russia for its invasion or on pariah dictatorships for nuclear ambitions from quote-unquote illegitimate coercion, China's use of the economic weapon in defence of its political interests. And you can understand why much of the rest of the world would just look on this cynically and say, well, this is just major powers protecting their interests. As you say, Alan, coercion is, is, is normal. It's always been done. And so it's a real challenge on how we message our victimhood versus the fact that, you know, our side does it too. And my suggestion was to focus on a couple of narratives by saying, one, that Australia's experience of China's economic coercion shows that coercion doesn't necessarily impose major economic costs. And so governments around the region or the world should not feel cowed by the risk of being coerced in defending their other national interests. But secondly, and this gets to your point, that China's coercion is incompatible with its claims of economic leadership. You know, what good is negotiating rules and new free trade agreements and trying to lead on globalization if you're going to throw those rules out the window when political issues and political disputes arise? Of course, the problem is that the US is not offering much economic leadership either. And so this actually brings me to the final item here, which is the fact that last month the Biden administration also released its new national security strategy, which had been delayed apparently because of the Ukraine invasion. As you would expect from this administration, the document is pretty carefully written. It describes the world being at an inflection point and that we're now in the early years of a decisive decade. The two overarching themes are one, to outcompete rivals, China and Russia, but also to tackle shared challenges like climate change. Now, to be honest, Alan, I haven't had a chance to do a deep dive into this document, so I'm going to refer our listeners to a great piece that my friend Zach Cooper published on the Singaporean channel News Asia, where he highlights three tensions in the strategy. One, that the document's animating theme is democracy, but that's a hard sell in Asia when political systems are quite diverse. Two, the strategy seeks to win the competition for the 21st century, but there aren't many in our region who are interested in being part of competing democratic and authoritarian blocs. And three, to go back to my point a moment ago, there is no substantial economic agenda in the document, which is what the region is really crying out for. On top of that, I'd add two points. First, it's interesting that they have this 10-year window 
explicitly in the document because if that's the case, then you can see how the semiconductor export controls might fit into that timetable. And second, I see the document really as a neat encapsulation of the strong domestic political constraints facing the US and facing the Biden administration. And these aren't just economic, of course. US democracy is facing real threats from within, and we'll see how this unfolds with the midterm results over the next few days. So you can understand why democracy would animate this in Biden's mind, and that be reflected in the strategy. Any comments from you, Alan? Just to say that I think Zach's article is well worth reading. I agree with him. And I'd just add that for Australia, with our neighbours, it's more important that we address the world as it is, not the world as we would wish it to be. And as you say, we might have to come back to US democracy when the results of the midterms are clear. Mm. Okay, well, let's turn to Australian foreign policy specifically. It's been a very busy month. Prime Minister Albanese met with three leaders in October, Japan's Prime Minister Kishida, Singapore's Prime Minister Lee, and Solomon Island's Prime Minister Sogavare. And if you go back to late September, you would include PNG's Prime Minister Marape as well. Foreign Minister Wong continued her energetic travel schedule and has visited now, I think, 12 Pacific countries across nine visits. And she also visited Thailand and Brunei and hosted, amongst others, India's Foreign Minister Jai Shankar. Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Miles has also been busy. And we've got then, you could add Trade Minister Farrell, Development Minister Conroy, and Assistant Foreign Minister Watts, all of whom have been keeping busy travel schedules. My first comment here, Alan, is that I want to congratulate you again for conceiving the idea of a weekly column currently written by Isabella Keith, which is called The Week in Australian Foreign Affairs, and it's published by the Australian Institute of International Affairs on its Australian Outlook website. You know, when the government wasn't doing so much, the previous government, especially during COVID, it was quite easy to keep track of what was happening. And now it's just this deluge of visits and speeches and media availability. And so this column is really keeping me from drowning in all this information. Me too, Darren. Congratulations to Isabella. It's really become an essential source for Australian foreign policy watchers. I really want to focus on, I think, the biggest visit, which was the visit by Japan's Prime Minister Kishida, and he met with Albanese in Perth. This is the fourth time the two have met since Albanese took office just five months ago. So that seems like quite a lot. The two countries issued a joint declaration on security cooperation, which Albanese described as a strong signal to the region of our strategic alignment, and Kishida called a compass to guide security and defence cooperation over the next decade. So, Alan, the strategic context is clear here. We all know it. And this declaration follows a path-breaking reciprocal access agreement signed by Prime Minister Morrison with Kishida back in January, but is not yet ratified due to some sensitivities over Japan's use of the death penalty in particular. Still, the direction of policy for the two nations is pretty clear, and commentary around this agreement and the visit highlighted its potential to accelerate cooperation across many areas, including intelligence sharing. So what did you make of it all? I agree that Kishida's visit carried real significance. The language in the joint declaration was active and forward-looking. It refers to ways of enhancing interoperability and building on the reciprocal access agreement. There were several media references to ANZUS-like language, which was true, but only reminded us that 
formal ANZUS commitments don't go far beyond consulting each other and then deciding what to do. Now, of course, concern about China lay underneath the language, but I think it's also worth noting that this deeper Australia-Japan relationship is based on a process that began well before Xi Jinping arrived on the scene. Australian and Japanese defence ministers began meeting in 1990, I think. The Keating government's 1995 joint declaration on Australia-Japan partnership pledged to build an enduring and steadfast partnership, quote, between the two countries. Then in 2008, Kevin Rudd signed a comprehensive strategic security agreement based on, again, quoting him, common values and enduring partnership. Tony Abbott negotiated the special strategic partnership in 2014 and the reciprocal access agreement began its long process of negotiation back in 2011. So my point here is that Australia has been, and this in a fully bipartisan way, encouraging Japan to become more engaged in the region and engaged with us well before Japan itself was comfortable with that sort of language. Now, by the way, Darren, this is an aside, but it's always interesting to look at the further down paragraphs in documents like the joint statement that was issued after the leaders' meeting. There's a long paragraph, paragraph 30, on the catastrophic consequences of nuclear warfare and the need for non-proliferation and disarmament, which would probably not have appeared in an answer statement, but is a reminder of the continuing importance of nuclear disarmament in Japanese policy. And I regard this podcast as a safe space, Darren, in which I can make comments about how much I like reading paragraph 30 in a joint statement like this without being laughed at by others. No laughter here, Alan, just smiles that you are enjoying yourself reading paragraph 30 of the statement. Look, for me, the early months of the Labor government were about resetting a narrative, right, to draw a clear contrast with a previous government. The focus on listening, on respect, and on changing outdated conceptions about who and what Australia is. But now we're in the doing phase, which is harder because most foreign policy, and especially international cooperation, happens slowly. It's incremental. It's often quite boring, and the effects build up over time. And so I chose those two quotes, one from each of the prime ministers, for the specific reason that I think they highlight the logic of what Australia-Japan cooperation represents right now. First, there is the logic of signalling, you know, that these are two countries very worried about China's intentions and China's growing power, and they are acting to build their capabilities together. And look, that ANZUS-type language you mentioned, Alan, is there. It's interesting that they use the phrase, we will consult, you know, and that's the language, obviously, in the treaty. And yes, it highlights the limits of the treaty and what obligations Australia and the US have under that treaty. But it also is, you know, treaty language. And Japan is obviously barred by its constitution at the moment from entering into new defence pacts. You know, it's barred from collective self-defence. So I think there's still something to the symbolism of using that similar language in this statement as a signal to the region. The second logic is that of the compass, the metaphor used by Prime Minister Kishida. 
And look, I think I, along with many of us, are searching for a, a strategic frame to understand the new government's foreign policy. And something clicked for me when I saw a tweet from friend of the podcast, Stephen Jedgetts of the ABC, a few days ago, when he observed that Japan and the UK have also just concluded a reciprocal access agreement, but that only took nine months to negotiate compared to the years and years it took for Australia and Japan to conclude ours, which we haven't ratified yet. And he sort of introduced the idea that maybe the Australian agreement provided a template for the UK agreement. And so I'm really fixated on this idea of a template and it's similar to Kashida's metaphor of the compass. Australia does not have the strategic weight to change the balance of power in the region single-handedly or to deter conflict by ourselves. And as we well know, there are now near permanent risks of variability in US policy, especially if Trump is elected in 2024. And right now, given the US economy, I'd say he's the favourite. So what can we do? Well, one thing we can do is what we've always done as a middle power, and that is build architecture. Now, we can't build multilateral architecture. We're not in that world anymore. It's a different strategic environment. But we can do bilateral architecture, and that bilateral architecture can potentially offer templates, to use Stephen's word, for cooperation that might help overcome barriers that exist to cooperation elsewhere that might not even involve us, and to grow momentum over time and potentially broaden you know, the coalition of states who are willing to participate. And that might happen one at a time. We can also, in addition to building architecture, help nudge political will. You know, Japan, in this case, is, is pretty low-hanging fruit. But if the two countries can execute well, demonstrate clear and focused intentions and practical competence, that might nudge others along who are on the fence currently but leaning you know, in our direction. I saw online there are rumours of an agreement between Japan and the Philippines, for example, which would be a big step forward. So, again, this doesn't happen in months or even a few years necessarily. It's a decades-long game. But for a country of our capabilities, our size, it's what there is and, to me, seems a very sensible strategy. Any reaction to that, Alan? I'm on board with that. It's the job of foreign policy to ensure that in whatever unpredictable directions international politics moves, our country always has options and doesn't find itself compelled to move in one particular way. Yeah, just for me, it's the idea that what we do might somehow expand the options of others and sort of create a pathway to them doing more. And I don't know if that's true, but that's the idea that's sort of in my mind right now. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I had one other point. While you were reading paragraph 30 of the joint statement, I was reading the opening statements from the leaders. They're not press conferences, but they're statements to the media before they meet. And there was one thing that jumped out at me from what the Prime Minister Albanese said. You know, when he talked about the relationship, the very first specific detail he offered was that, I'll quote, it is an economic relationship based upon the fact that Australia remains a reliable and secure partner when it comes to the export of energy to Japan. And right now, as I said at the beginning of the episode, you know, I am deep in energy security worlds. So that's the frame in which I'm looking at all these statements. And so there's probably some bias there. But when I read that, I immediately thought of the current consequences of the gas shortage around the world that's been caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
I thought about the gas crisis that Australia itself experienced on the eastern seaboard, as Australians remember back in June, because of a shortage of gas, and the fact that the government then and in the future can face domestic political pressure to keep more gas in Australia and not export it abroad. But of course, if we do that, that means we're exporting less, and that could be a problem for our partners in Northeast Asia, like Japan and Korea, or even for a country like Singapore. So I inferred through this energy security frame that I've got that the prominence of this in it coming so early on in the Prime Minister's statement was an attempt to reassure Tokyo that, yes, we understand your interests, we are sensitive to them. But look, if a gas crisis emerges next winter, there are going to be some very difficult domestic versus foreign policy trade-offs facing the government. And it's just another way that Russia's invasion is fundamentally disrupting you know, policy and energy policy in particular around the world. Well, Alan, I think we should probably end it there. We've been going for a long time. There's a lot more we could have talked about, including the other leaders' meetings and the continued frenetic pace of the foreign minister. But we've got some big events ahead. We'll have to process the midterm results. We've got COP27 outcomes. Foreign Minister Wong is, of course, giving a speech this weekend, the Whitlam oration that we'll pay close attention to. And we are entering summit season at the end of this calendar year. So maybe, Alan, we'll wrap up there, but I'll ask you to sort of preview some of the summits that the Prime Minister is going to be and other leaders are going to be attending. What's in store for summit season? This is an important series of meetings, the East Asia Summit and the APEC leaders meeting and, of course, the G20. The first post-COVID summit in-person summit season we've had. So the first major in-person meeting is between a number of key figures, including Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. And given the state of the world at present, that's no small thing. It's also the first time I can remember all three summits being held in ASEAN capitals. I haven't checked on that. But one consequence of it is that we'll certainly put the focus on Southeast Asia, which has been such a central element in the government's foreign policy so far. So it's going to be a test for the Prime Minister on whether foreign policy under his government is more than China and AUKUS and the Quad, and whether we can address in these forums issues that are important both to Australia and Southeast Asia. And I'm thinking here of questions such as energy security, which you've been talking about, and food and trade, where our interests will align pretty much with our neighbours. Okay, well, lots to look forward to. Let's do our final segment, as always, reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us this week? One of the few advantages of long-haul air flights is that you get to catch up with the movies that you've missed. And somewhere between Singapore and Europe, I finally got to see Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which stars the wonderful Michelle Yeoh of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon fame in a very different role as a stressed-out Chinese immigrant laundromat owner in America who's being audited by the IRS who encounters the multiverse and saves the world. I won't dwell on it because dwelling isn't what you do with a movie like this, but it has many surprising things to say about the immigrant experience, married life, mother-father and mother-daughter relationships and free will. It's directed by Daniel Kwan and Dan Scheinert. 
And on a more sober note, because we haven't been talking much about Ukraine, I wanted to mention two pieces of writing. Michael Wesley from Melbourne University had an excellent analysis for Australians in the Lowy Interpreter on the implications of the Ukraine war for Asia. And I found that a good companion piece to that was an article by the American reporter George Packer called On Democracy's Frontline, which is in the October edition of The Atlantic. This is an on-the-ground report of how Ukrainians are responding to the war. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, will know Packer through his books, Assassin's Gate, America in Iraq, and Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, which I recommended on the podcast a couple of years ago. Both Everything Everywhere All at Once and Packer's reporting from Ukraine are reminders that almost everything with serious intent being created by Americans these days also addresses at some deeper level, the state of America itself. Now, I just made that up, Darren, but I think it's probably true. <laughs> I think that might be true indeed. So for me, I figured if having just done a lot of reading on energy security, I should recommend to our listeners one piece from all the things I read that I found particularly useful. And that is a piece in a fairly recent issue of Foreign Affairs by Jason Bordoff and Megan O'Sullivan, called Green Upheaval, the New Geopolitics of Energy. And one of the interesting points it makes is the challenge we all face in bringing down our consumption of fossil fuels, but keeping it at a level that meets the existing demands even as we transition to renewables. And during that transition process, which will last decades, we should expect that the power of fossil fuel producers, especially like Saudi Arabia, could actually increase because they are the lowest cost producers. So they'll be the longest suppliers. They have the best prospects of supplying in the long term. Keeping the balance right between encouraging investment in fossil fuels that is needed for the short to medium term, but also you know not encouraging too much is a very tricky balance to strike and will, I think, cause a lot of you know grief over the short to medium term. And then I think just to acknowledge that I had to listen to quite a few podcasts, both on the 20th Party Congress and on the US's export controls on semiconductors. So I'll post a few episodes that I found especially useful and then get into the technical detail of Chinese politics in very useful ways. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Artik Ameki for her audio editing today. And thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We promise we'll talk to you again much sooner than the last time. Farewell.